Waltons.com has everything, and I mean everything, for your everyday cooking and wild game processing needs. Plus, they have experts on staff to help you learn how to use those products to get the best results. John Tremblay hosts their MeatGistics podcast, live streams and live chats, which are interactive learning tools for the meat processing community. If you have questions, John and his team have the answers, from sausage making to smoking, recipes to seasonings, and so much more. Walton's products ship the same day you order. They have over 5,000 items in stock from grinders, mixers, stuffers, slicers, smokers, vacuum sealers, woo, and a whole lot more. Order the same seasonings and supplies that professionals use from the best name in the wild game processing industry. Then sign up for their monthly giveaways. Walton's, they have everything but the meat. This episode of the Flush Podcast is brought to you by Walton's, Aluma Trailers, North Dakota Tourism, Federal Ammunition, Onyx Hunt, and by Nutrisource Pet Foods. Today, we're taking a look at the big picture of conservation, dogs, and the people that love both. Terry Wilson is my guest. Terry owns the site Ugly Dog Hunting with his wife. He's also a NAVDA judge and a board member of the Rough Grouse Society. Needless to say, we have plenty to dig into on today's show. Welcome to another episode of the Flush Podcast. I'm Travis Frank. I'm your host, Brandon Morton, as always, is our producer. Before we introduce today's guest, I just want to say a great big thank you to you, our listeners, for your incredible support. Last week, we announced the return of the Hank Hunt, and the spots filled up within hours of this podcast, or I should say that podcast, going live. That's pretty cool. I've actually had a few of you reach out to me directly trying to get you in somehow and get on the waiting list. And I just have to say that I cannot help you. I'm sorry. I cannot get you in. Uh, it's a first come, first serve. And I don't think the sun set the first day without everything being filled up. And I've been told that the waiting list has grown, which tells us that there's a lot of support for this, a lot of interest in it. And that's ultimately uh, what we want to see. So we're grateful for that. The Upland community, you guys are awesome. Um, we're excited to to put this event on because the big picture, the you know the 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 goal is that we come together to enjoy hunting and our dogs. But at the same time, we're raising money for pheasants forever. We're putting habitat back into the ground. So thank you all. Uh, Hank Hunt is full. And based on all of the <laughs> the excitement around it, I'm guessing that we're probably going to end up doing it again next year. Maybe, hey, Brandon, maybe next year you and I host the hunt instead of Scott and Ron. You in? Yeah, I'm totally down with that. We'll use the podcast as an excuse for me to get out there. There you go. There you go. Well, I, I'm also bummed that you couldn't make it to our Sporting Clays event. I I, I shot 50 out of 50. It would have been a sight for you to see. 50 out of 50, you say? No, I'm lying. I didn't, I'm kidding. Yeah, I didn't think that was the case. <laughs> no, but it was, uh, we, we went to the Clays for Conservation event that Pheasants Forever was putting on here in Minnesota. Uh, Matt Kaharski, who was our guest on the podcast a few weeks ago, along with Bob St. Pierre, they've done this now, I want to say like five or six years. It was a great event. Weather was fantastic. We were at Wild Wings of Oneka. 
I believe that's how you pronounce that. Um, and yeah, we had our own group. The Flush had a group. Um, and we shot well, some of us. Some of us uh, could use a little bit more practice, but that's the whole point of the event. And next time, you better be there, Brandon. I'll be there for sure, but I'll practice before the event so I don't look like a fool. <laughs> well, the, the the thing is that you're only going to look like a fool to the four of us in the group. It's not like there's a crew of people following. Uh, there's no peanut gallery. Nobody's <laughs> laughing at you except for the three or four of us that are in the group. So, All right. I can handle whole, your guys' laughter for sure. Yeah, I'm good yeah. At that. The whole point is <laughs> that is your practice. And yes. that's going to help you um, leading up into this hunting season, which begins... Today, for some of you, depending on when, I think this podcast goes out Thursday, which is September 1st, and the 1st of September is opening day in many places, uh, maybe you shouldn't say many, in a few places around the country, and other seasons are opening up in the next few weeks around the country, so we are just as excited as every one of you. I'm going to go ahead and bring in today's guest. Terry Wilson is our guest. Terry owns the company Ugly Dog Hunting with his wife, Nancy Anisfeld. Nancy serves on the board of directors at Pheasants Forever. Terry is a PF Gold patron. He serves on the board at the Rough Grouse Society. Tara, Terry is also a NAVDA judge. Oh, needless to say, we have a lot of angles to go with today's conversation. Terry, thank you for making time for us today. Did I miss any titles there in your introduction? <laughs> I think you're fine. Okay, I hit I hit the most important ones. Well, yeah, actually, PF and uh, NAVDA and uh, RGS and uh, and American Woodcock Society. Those are the big ones for me. So, oh, I didn't say anything about the American Woodcock Society. What's your role there? Yeah, well, that's RGS. American Woodcock Society is part of the Rough Grouse Society. So, okay, yeah, uh, we started that a number of years ago, and uh, to bring in because there are a lot of woodcock hunters that uh, that hunt both species and. Uh, uh, they both need the same habitat, so to speak, and mm -hmm. so, uh, and that's also to bring in the southern states too, where woodcock are plentiful during the migration. I, I mentioned all those titles, but I, I think most important one might be husband. Are you also a father? Yes, I am. I have uh, two daughters. One does not hunt, but the other one does. So uh, I have a son-in-law and a great grandson who's an avid hunter. So he's carrying on the tradition of passing on the legacy, so to speak. Gotcha. And, uh, incidentally, uh, let me back up with Nancy. Nancy does not own Ugly Dog, but she is the creative voice behind Ugly Dog. Okay. And <laughs> uh, and you then technically are the owner of Ugly Dog? Yes, I am. Unfortunately, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, if for somebody that... The problem is, if, if it's the problem, you know, talk to one of the dogs. That's fine. But Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Well, Nancy is the reason that you and I are speaking today because she reached out and she wanted us to have this conversation. I said, well, Nancy, why don't you and I have the conversation? She said, no, no, you and Terry would have a better conversation. So here we are anyway. So thank you, Nancy. It's it's uh, I, much appreciated. Can I tell you a funny story about uh, Please do. Nancy? This is in the PF people appreciate this. A number of years ago, I was sitting in my office and the phone rang. And they said, uh, it's Howard Vincent's on the line. I said, oh, okay. So instantly, you know, Howard, how you doing? And so he's talking to me. And all along, I'm thinking to myself, hey, maybe this is cool. Maybe they want me to be on the board of directors of uh, Pheasants Forever. 
And as the conversation unfolded, I realized he wasn't interested in me. He was interested in my wife. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so anyway, I gave her a great plug in. And uh, she came on board with a PF, and uh, and uh, she had a lot of fun there. And I think she contributed quite a bit to it. So we both give a lot to conservation. But that was just kind of a backstory, kind of a funny story. Well, behind every good man is an even better wife. You so uh, yes. So um, let's see how how should we start this? Uh, well, first, for somebody that doesn't know what ugly dog is, can you explain what that is? Well, ugly dog hunting, uh, we've been around approximately 22 years, and uh, we're a wing shooting catalog uh, focused primarily on dog training. Uh, it's almost all upland hunting equipment. Uh, we don't sell shotguns and things like that, but anything else related to dog training, dog hunting, um, you know, we, we sell carry a full range of products. And um, like I said, we've been around about 22 years, and... Uh, Started out as a catalog company, and then we morphed into now it's strictly internet based. But uh, um, you know we're uh, we're a small uh, homegrown company, and take a lot of personal interest in our customers. And I'm usually always available to talk to somebody in most cases. So uh, we've been quite successful. The company was uh, our logo. I don't know if you've seen the logo or not, but. Uh, mm-hmm. That was uh, modeled after my the original Ugly Dog Scrub, so that the, the logo was kind of stuck, and uh, you know we've created quite a little niche in the upland market. Uh, we don't get too much into the waterfowl, just a little bit, but uh, it's primarily all upland hunting. And how many employees? Uh, it's seasonal, but it varies. Sometimes it can be as little as one, and sometimes as much as four or five. Okay, and what what season are we in right now for you? Is it busy season? It's just starting now. Okay. Uh, typically, um, you know, end of August, uh, it starts to ramp up. Uh, like you mentioned earlier, that hunting season starting September 1st. And so this is when it starts to uh, get very busy. And then once we get into September, October, November, December, uh, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Where do people come from? I mean, I assume all over the country, but do, they, do you sell all over the world? Uh, we don't. Well, occasionally we do. We do sell some into the UK, um, but the majority of the business is the United States and Canada. Okay. What have you seen or what have you learned in your 20 plus years of retail in the upland bird hunting and dog training world? You're going to laugh, but I think the, one of the funniest things, if you find a pair of boots or you find a product you like, mm-hmm. buy a bunch of it because it may not be here in two years. So, I mean, the, the market is very dynamic. It changes all the time. The manufacturers come out with new products consistently, uh, discontinue old products that in seemingly work very well, but uh, there's always a quest for new and improved. And uh, so it's, uh, it's, it's, very, it's, it's a very uh, volatile market when it comes to that. And now is even worse because uh, we have serious supply chain issues getting product. Mainly because of COVID or the uh, demand or what? I think it's a perfect storm. I mean, it's COVID and then uh, uh, with the shipping industry being as it is. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, a lot of products come from offshore. And uh, some of the lead times are stretching out to six, eight months, nine months in some cases. Um, so we have to do a little bit better job of buying now. Um, 
but even then, it, that's that's not a hedge against this problem. So, you know, our sales have been consistently up through all of COVID. In fact, we saw a pretty big uptick, and uh, it was it was quite interesting. And I sat back and thought about that for a while, and I realized that, you know, people were, you know, they're going out and buying puppies. They're, you know, they're getting back into dog training. They're getting back into the outdoors. Uh, they may not have hunted for a year or two. Now, all of a sudden, there's this great interest. And that was great for the first two years. And then we hit the we hit the wall this year. And uh, we, you know, we're getting, quoting, horrendous lead times from our vendors. Some are, some are very good. And, uh, and some, it's just not their fault. It's just they, they can't produce goods fast enough. And then once they get the goods, uh, then you're looking at significant lead times in, in, in transportation. So it's, it's kind of like a perfect storm. But I'm hoping that within the next six months, this will tend to uh, work itself out. So our sales could have been even higher if we could have gotten product. If you had the product, because I'm assuming you take it off of the site or say unavailable if you don't have product in hand. That's correct. I uh, a number of years ago, I I'm a little old fashioned. I will not sell product unless I physically have it in the warehouse. And uh, you know, so and you'd be surprised. It's funny. You get people little calls and send emails and say, "Well, I see that you had uh, five of this on your website," and they'll say, "Do you really have it?" <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, as a hunter that <clears throat> orders products online all the time, I just did yesterday. Um, I want to know that too, because I have a reason that I'm buying something. A lot of times it's, I'm leaving within a week or 10 days to go on a hunt. And, um, <clears throat> so yeah, having that product there is obviously important. Do you are, well, how do you go about figuring out what items you want to carry? Is it your personal experience and you look at something and say, yeah, I want to have that? Or does somebody else sell you on it? Or how does that process work? Well, we work with, you know, over the years, we've developed a, a good rapport with the uh, various manufacturers and wholesalers of the product. And uh, we're constantly working with them for new products, looking at new products and uh, uh, any, any ideas and suggestions that they have. And so, you know, um, it, it works out pretty well. Uh, we used to go to the SHOT Show uh, and do a lot of buying there. But as of late, it's it's kind of gone out of that. It's not, let's put it this way, it's not specifically for Upland. And so it's, it's just a lot of walking and uh, we have very few contacts. Uh, so I'm sure you've been to the SHOT Show a number of times. So Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's massive. I mean, that's the that's yeah. thing that I think a lot of people might not understand is just how big it is and how many options. I mean, you could have, I don't know how many thousands of SKUs on your site if you wanted to, but you ha ultimately have to make that decision. Well, you've got to, you know, you've got to filter it down. And one of our, one of our thoughts when we first started the business that we were going to kind of distill it down to the point where we would give you one or two options and not 25. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of the larger, uh, larger competitors will have, you know, instead of two pairs of boots they're offering for hunting, they'll offer 50 pair. And, you know, myself, when I, I used to do the shopping, I would get confused. I'd be going back and forth and, you know, and I would know what I was looking at half the time. So mm -hmm. we kind of distill it down and we look at what the hardcore bird hunters are going to buy. Now we're not going to, um, uh, 
we're not going to please everybody, but this yeah. is what we try to do. Uh, give them, uh, you know, a couple of different options, uh, maybe three options at the most and, um, and let them make the choice. And, uh, it, and that seems to work very well for us. That was our model. All right. Well, um, your, that's your day job, right? That's your nine to five, if you will. I'm guessing it's not nine to five, but that's your number one job, right? Unless I'm hunting. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's transition yeah. then, because you also serve on the board at uh, the Rough Grouse Society. Your wife serves on the board at Pheasants Forever. Um, how is it like two organizations clashing in your house, or do you guys feel like you have a pretty solid working uh, marriage relationship there? Yes, we have a very solid working relationship, and. Uh, you know, we've always managed to keep that whatever goes on at PF and whatever goes on at RGS that stays between us. And uh, not that we're really competitors or anything like that. And they're both fine, uh, you know, wonderful conservation organizations. And I might add that Nancy is no longer on the board. She just recently left. And okay. she, she put in a, a good amount of time. And uh, so she she left in good hands and she left. I'm still on the board of RGS, obviously. Mm-hmm. But, um, no, we've always we always worked that out very well. There was never any issues, um, and uh, it was it was interesting because actually um, she learned about a lot about uh, upland conservation with RGS and uh, through me, and uh, I learned a lot about PF and QF through her. So it was a it was actually a win win situation. Well, they're both seeking habitat for the birds that we all love to hunt. So in some ways, there's got to be a lot of overlap there. And I think that's that's really ultimately why she reached out is for us to be able to talk about kind of the intersection of all of these organizations, dog training organizations like NAVDA, Rough Grouse Society, Pheasants Forever, and how she sees them, how you guys see them working together for the greater good. so there's a lot of uh, we can break that down, but big picture wise, what are you seeing today in this intersection of all of these organizations that you haven't been seeing 10, 15, 20 years ago? Well, I think it's a matter of survival. And uh, we, you know, we realize that, you know, at the, at the end of the day, I mean, we all want conservation and, uh, Conservation at PF may not be the same as uh, conservation at RGS, but at the end of the day, there is conservation, and it is what it's doing is it's it's conserving the habitat for for our birds that we always love to hunt, and uh, and so we we need to collaborate and work on that together. And uh, it's really it, it back when I first started at at, at RGS. Uh, you know, we were always like, no, 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 this is it. This is RGS. Uh, we're not, uh, we're not going to collaborate with anybody. And then eventually along the line, everybody being, began to see the light. And now I think that we have a, a great uh, impact uh, when you, 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 you know, if you get the conservation organizations together, uh, such as PF, uh, you know, RGS and Ducks Unlimited, Mm-hmm. So they become a they become a major force and a major voice in the world of conservation, 
and uh, they may not have the same ultimate goals, but at the end, it is really the ultimate goal is conservation. It's habitat. When when you look at Rough Grouse Society, because that's the board that you serve on, you were the chair of Rough Grouse Society. Um, <clears throat> what uh, what do you think the health of that organization is today? What's your strength? I think the organization is stronger than it's ever been. Uh, we came through the pandemic very well. We, uh, a number of few years back, we hired a new uh, CEO, which is Ben Jones. And uh, he has really taken over and basically uh, done a great job uh, streamlining the organization and really putting us on the map. And uh, so, and a lot of that is in part of collaborating with, uh, you know, with Howard and, and everybody else uh, out there in the conservation world. So we're actually a very strong organization right now. We revamped things where, you know, we used to have the old model where we, you know, we do a banquet, all the money would go back to headquarters, but it was kind of a one and done deal. But now, I mean, we actually have, uh, you know, conservation directors out there that will work with the landowners, work with gov- with the local government. Um, and we'll actually get proceeds from the timber cuts uh, to some degree. So, you know, we did away with the old biologist thing because we used to have the biologists. And, but the biologists, where they were very good at biology, but they weren't good at, you know, the economics of cutting timber. And uh, so now they, these uh, conservation directors, they work with the various different groups to make sure that it's a win-win situation all the way around. And so we have a number of those throughout the country and uh, uh, they do, they do an excellent job to give an example right here in the state of Vermont. We've been uh, uh, the green mountain chapter, which is I'm the chapter president of, I should say. And uh, we actually helped fund a project. In other words, a startup of this project, in the Green Mountain National Forest. And uh, over the next 10 to 15 years, we're going to actually actively manage and cut 12,000 acres plus of forest in the Green Mountain National Forest, which is unprecedented. That's never been done before. And so this is going to be a boon to, you know, for wildlife habitat. And, uh, you know, having hunted in the forest, in the Green Mountain National Forest when I was younger, it was great habitat, but it's no longer concessional. And uh, so we need that. So that's just one project in a little state of Vermont, which is a huge project, which is mm-hmm. ongoing. And um, so that's just goes to show you that uh, with the new conservation directors, they can they can find these opportunities. Uh, and uh, so that's that's one of the things that uh, you know is just a, is is incredibly impressive. Uh, and we've been working on that for about four years. And you you know that it's not easy to cut trees sometimes. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of pushback from the non-hunting world that doesn't understand necessarily the benefits of, of timber cuts. Well, and um, you, hit, you hit on a subject right there because we have reached out to the other organizations and we have educated them on the science of this. And now they're starting to understand that they can collaborate with us and they can work with us because now there's a mutual benefit 
rather than being adversaries. And uh, although there still is pushback, hmm. uh, a, lot, a lot of it is related to roads in an area or things like that. But for the most part, you know, we're able to work around it. And uh, who, who it pushes does, back, Terry? If I can jump in, who pushes back? Well, I, you know, there are various other conservation organizations. Uh, um, you know, a lot of them. Uh, I, I'd rather not really discuss them. I don't want to start any problems. But you know, yeah, there fine. are organizations out there that will. They just don't want to cut trees. Period. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And a lot of these are not. They're not the larger organizations. They're the smaller organizations, but they still have access to the courts and uh, they can still force people to do things. And uh, so, you know, we, we had issues in the Green Mountain National Forest where there was a, a number of people that that started complaining about the number of roads. Well, if you don't have roads, it's hard to cut trees. And, uh, you know, so this is one of the things, you know, they were saying, well, you can only go so far off a road to cut timber. But that doesn't go with the plan. I mean, you have to go further. So, but anyway, we were able to work around that, and we're almost there right now. It took us. I'm guessing. I'm not sure. I'm maybe. I'm. I'm saying two to three years, maybe four years to get over the hurdles. But we did, and um, so it's just. It, but you know, it's worth. This is building for the future here. I mean, mm-hmm. this project here will benefit another generation. Uh, you know, so it's, and that's going to be over probably, it'll be 15 years. Hunting season is just around the corner and that means it's time to start planning. If you're looking for a great bird hunting destination this fall, then I strongly recommend that you consider one of my favorite places to hunt. That's North Dakota. North Dakota is a bird hunter's paradise. You can hunt both waterfowl and upland birds all in the same day. And North Dakota has approximately 700,000 acres of private land open to public walk-in hunting. This year, North Dakota has a population estimate of 3.4 million breeding ducks, which is 38% above the long-term average, and their prey pothole region is smack dab in the middle of the central flyway. Their spring water index also came way up, over 600% from last year's drought. Habitat on the landscape looks great, and I'm hearing reports of a strong hatch from their upland birds. With a little scouting, you just might find yourself in a field surrounded by wild flushing pheasants, sharp-tailed grouse, and Hungarian partridge. Start planning your fall hunt in North Dakota at legendarynd.com. If you're an outdoor lover on the go, then odds are good that you have toys and equipment that you want to haul. Aluma Trailers, well, they've got you covered. Their trailers are built by a hardworking team in Bancroft, Iowa. They have models for nearly any and every hauling need, from ATV and UTV trailers to utility, snowmobile, motorcycle, car trailers, and even fully enclosed trailers like mine. Trust me when I say that Aluma trailers tow like a dream. Their trailers are constructed out of lightweight, strong, corrosion-resistant aluminum, and they are 100% maintenance-free. Plus, they come with an industry-best five-year warranty. Visit alumaklm.com to find a trailer that fits your needs. The Onyx Hunt app is one of the most valuable hunting tools that I take into the field every day. I use it on every hunt. Seriously, every hunt. Their app tells me everything I need to know about the lands that I want to hunt and the lands that we can all legally hunt on. The app also shows your location on planet Earth and clearly lays out the land boundaries. It tells you information about the type of property you're on, like state land or federal lands or walk-in access properties. 
It's ideal for scouting before the hunt and during a hunt to help put together patterns. The app also has helpful features that show you the kind of crops that are in fields, which obviously is a big deal for us upland bird hunters. And there's a timber cut layer to help you find the right forest habitat for rough grouse. If you hunt in North Dakota, there's even a layer that lets you know if a property has been posted electronically. These are just a few of the many tools Onyx apps give you. And these maps can even be used in areas without cell coverage. From the palm of your hand, Onyx Maps always help you to know where you stand. When you cut uh, properties, when do you tell people to expect to see the benefits from it? I know a lot of grouse hunters realize that it's a 7, 8, 10, 12, 15 year process. But is there kind of a golden point for you when you say this is going to be ideal habitat at year what? Okay, I'm not a forester. Understand that. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <clears throat> but uh, you know, it. I I, I would say it, it. It could be as little as five years. Okay, mm-hmm. it's usually somewhere around that sweet spot. Uh, probably somebody will correct me on this, but I'm going to say it's you know seven years somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I've hunted. Uh, I have a good friend of mine who is also on the board of directors for RGS. He has some property in upstate New York. And um, he, we, I was over there hunting, and we were hunting in uh, aspen whips that were, I don't know, probably three, four-year-old. And we were finding more wickock in there than the dogs could possibly point in a day, you know. So uh, I, I couldn't believe we were finding birds in there. And that was only like two- or three-year-old growth. So it's, hmm. you know, I but I'm going to say that sweet spot is somewhere around seven years, somewhere in that area. That's kind of what I figure too. I, I usually make notes on Onyx on my map and drop pins. And I, when I see a timber cut and I kind of, I write down when I believe this is going to be ideal based on the cut. Uh, let's, let's keep moving forward. How many chapters does the Rough Grouse Society have? That one, I... I'm, I'm going to, I'm guessing somewhere's around a hundred, but I don't quote me on that. Okay. okay. Uh, that one, I, I don't, I don't have that information in front of me. I should know that, but I don't. <laughs> is it, you know? is it growing? Absolutely. Yeah. We're, our membership is growing uh, every year. And um, so it's, it's, it's coming along very well. I mean, we've been around since 1961. Uh, Rough Grouse Society, so it was, and uh, we've gone through some some growing pains and uh, over the years, but now everything is, is great. And uh, so, anyway, yeah, it, it, the membership is growing. Well, that's good to hear. Um, when it comes to volunteers, um, let's speak. Let's let's talk your story because everyone has their own reasons why they volunteer. But why did you? Why did you start volunteering for a conservation organization in the first place? Well, you know, I've always been a believer that if I'm going to if I'm going to partake in something and I'm going to use the resource and I should give back to it. And uh, and many people volunteer; they don't, you know, and because we have a very hardcore group of volunteers here, but they're all avid, all avid grouse and woodcock hunters, and so. This is why, you know, this is why I began volunteering. I grew up in a deer hunting uh, family and uh, never really actively hunted grouse uh, and woodcock until I was in my 20s. But uh, 
but I've always had a firm believer in in conservation. I believed in that deeply. And, you know, the volunteers are a backbone of any organization. I mean, uh, they, I mean, they're right on the front line. They're the people that are doing the work. Uh, they're the people that are helping raise the funds. Um, so, you know, that's, you know, I just have a deep care for the environment. And, uh, and I want to see, and I want to leave a legacy where, you know, this will continue for future generations. I want my grandson who's, who's an avid hunter to be able to have, be able to hunt with his kids. And, uh, uh, to me, that's that's important. You believe you leave something behind. You talk about leaving a legacy. When you look back, what do you think is going to be the single greatest achievement that you've uh, contributed to our world? <laughs> I know it's a huge question, but is there anything that st- stands out to you about something that you've worked hard to see happen? Well, uh, a number of years ago, about seven years ago, this was shifting gears to uh, NAVDA, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, Nancy and I decided that we wanted to, uh, we realized that uh, we needed to get more youth involvement in NAVDA. And so she and I got together and we put together a program and we actually started an endowment, a youth endowment program. For NAVDA. Okay. And this allows kids to, it allows them for uh, kids, children to be reimbursed for testing. It allows them to do, uh, they can have training days. So, and, you know, so the chapters can, uh, uh, the chapters can apply for the funds. And that's, it's been a huge boon to bringing in children. And to me, that's the important, that's, uh, we're all going to, you know, we're all going to age out at some point. And uh, to me, to leave that behind, is a, it's, it's a huge legacy for Nancy and I. Um, with, go ahead. Oh, yeah. No, keep going. You know, along with the other, you know, the things that we've contributed over the years to uh, PF and RGS. And, uh, uh, you know, I mean, to me, to, to, you know, to pay that now and to see it come to fruition later on is great. But the main thing is, it's, it's, it's after we're gone. I mean, I want this to continue. I, I grew up in a world where I could go out my back door and hunt until my heart's content. That world no longer exists, okay, for a lot of kids. Mm-hmm. But I want to see that continue and, uh, with, you know, with the children can grow up and pass this on to their children. And um, that's, you know, Nancy and I are, are fully, you know, fully vested in that, in that belief. You, excuse me, you mentioned you grew up in a world where you could walk out your back door and hunt to your heart's content. And I, I told the story at a handful of Pheasants Forever banquets this past year uh, that I was able to emcee and, and speak at. And I had the same experience as you, Terry. I was able to walk out my back door and hunt and trap and be in the outdoor world. And that particular property no longer exists. And what I mean by that is there's roads. It's about 1,500 homes that now exist on that. We didn't own it. Uh, we, I was just blessed to have been given access to it as a, as a kid. And now there hasn't been a pheasant or a deer or a duck on that couple hundred acres in many, many years. Um, and so when we gather at these organizations, 
Um, I tell people stories like that because the reality is we're fighting to keep those kind of places or to build them back again where we can go and experience something as amazing as a flush of a bird or a duck sailing into your decoys or a deer walking by or a turkey or whatever it might be. But a lot of us have those places that are special to us. And a lot of us have lost those places. And I think, you know, when I say that and I I mention that story, um, I basically, I tell people, I bet each and every one of you in this room has that space. And just think about that for a minute and Mm -hmm. what that means to you. And that's why we're fighting tonight. <laughs> and that's why we're here. You know, that's why we come that's together. Great. So it's great. kind of my rah, rah pitch in a way, I but agree. it's the truth. You know, it's the reality. I, I, I agree. And, uh, and that to me, that this is what all these conservation groups are into right now. And, uh, and this is, this is the only way this is going to continue. Uh, you know, I'll give you a quick story. Uh, the next town over, I grew up and we had a deer camp. And uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the hunting camp, deer camp culture, but it was a culture. Oh, yeah. And uh, it was it was sacred. And things happened and the family didn't renew the lease and whatnot. And so the deer camp went by the way. And about three years ago, Nancy and I said, let's go take a ride. We're just looking for covers. And we happened to drive on this road where the deer camp was. And I, I looked up at the top of the hill and I was stunned because it was a $5 million house sitting there. <laughs> on the on your old deer camp yeah what? where it was <laughs> unreal it's amazing so i've literally been having this conversation with a couple of friends this week and one of our friends moved to tennessee and we're in minnesota central minnesota and my buddy and his family and then our deer camp that we go to in northern minnesota up in the woods we just cherish this place because uh, if you have a deer camp, you understand how special it is. Or if you have a grouse camp, I don't know of a mm-hmm. lot of pheasant camps, but I do know of grouse camps right. and deer camps. And ours are one and the same. And it's a friend that has this place in the woods. And, um, you know, it's just, it's so special. And there are other parts in the country that don't have that. You know, in Minnesota, our deer season, at least in this particular area, is so short. You know, it's spread, it's it's different for different regions of the state, but it's it's nine day season for firearms and everyone goes to camp, you know, and then my buddy goes in that moved to Tennessee. He goes, we don't have that here or we don't have it's not the same culture because we have a seven week rifle season and we have muzzleloader seasons that last before that. And we can shoot like 30 deer. And, you know, I mean, it's not nearly the same kind of culture, but I I have just like part of me has this um, desire to try to propose some kind of a bill and legislation in Minnesota because I have kids that are in sports and I know that there are days coming where I have to make the decision. Are we going to deer camp or are you going to go to hockey practice? I know. And, And they have to let their team down or make that decision that they're going to miss out on it. I just want them to have two days every year where there's no sporting events, where kids can go to camp and (laughs) hunt or fish. And that can be in Minnesota. The two biggest outdoor holidays are the fishing opener and the deer opener. And for each one 
a half a million anglers and a half a million deer hunters go into the field. But at those same times, parents and kids have to decide, are they going to go to baseball, soccer, or are they going to go to football and hockey for each one of those? And I don't want them to have to decide. I just want us to have two holidays that we can make important enough for us to keep these outdoor traditions alive. Now I'm on a rant, Terry. Dang it, you got me going. But I don't know if it would ever pass. I just, I I care that much about it because I know that if you go to a camp and you have people that come together for one day of the year, that can be a major, major life change for kids Absolutely. that get to experience it. Well, to give you an example in Vermont, and Vermont has changed, uh, uh, not for the good either at some point, but uh, when I was growing up, deer season was, it was sacred because the Friday before, deer season always started on the Saturday, and the Friday before deer season and the Monday after that first weekend, the schools were closed here hmm. because most of the kids wouldn't wouldn't be attending school and probably three quarters of the teachers were out hunting. Mm-hmm. So they actually closed the schools. I mean, now, I mean, it's, 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 you know, if you did a poll, uh, I can believe my grandson, I remember when he was younger, I asked him, I said, Noah, what do you think, uh, how many kids in your class hunt? He goes, three. I said, you got to be kidding me. And Out of how many? I don't know. It is one class, 25, 30 kids mm-hmm. in a class. Uh, so it's, it's like 10%, somewhere like that. And I'm going, you see, this is, this is what frightens me. And um, so we need to bring in. This is the, this goes back to the knob to youth thing. Is that we need to bring in uh, more kids into the, into the into the shooting sports and the hunting sports. And one of the big catalysts to do that uh, to bring kids in, I've always said the big conduit is through the dogs. And you know we can you can do a demo with kids and and you can light them up when you get dogs, well trained dogs that a kid can, a child can actually go out and handle, make them heal and sit and behave. And uh, you can, uh, I mean, that's where you start is you can, this is why Nobda is very near and dear to me because of that, because we are bringing up another generation of children. And I see it now all the time where these six, seven year old kids are out there. They're working with their parents. They're out there with the dogs. They're going to training clinics. Uh, and it just, it's just a wonderful feeling. I mean, and they're actually out, they're actually out there helping. And mm-hmm. this is the next generation that we have to bring, bring up. And I'm sure you see that in PF. Again, I'm not part of that culture, although I do hunt pheasant, I must, I might add. But, uh, you know, so it's in Navda, because Navda transcends everything. I mean, it brings in RGS, Ducks Unlimited, PF, uh, American Woodcock Society. I mean, all these people, well, not all, but most of them hunt with dogs. Mm-hmm. So th- there's your conduit right there. And that's how we try to, you know, use this to bring in more kids and get more recruitment and more retention, too, in- into the uh, into the training world. Because they'll pass those on to their children. And I've seen, I've been in Nobda for, well, I don't know, 16 years or so. And I've seen kids grow up and, you know, now they were – I saw these little kids running around the field planting birds out there at a clinic. And um, I sat with one the other day. We were we were up at a training clinic, and uh, he's now an object judge. 
So, I mean, and that's a wonderful thing to see, you know. And uh, so, and you know, you know, and he's going to pass it on to his children. So, and, uh, but that's, that's one of the reasons why we started that Youth Endowment Fund. We wanted to see that. Uh, and I think that's going to go a long way to, uh, uh, at the end of the day, to bring in more and more members and more youth. One thing I didn't establish off the top, and I apologize, where are you located? Where, where do you live now? Where did you grow up hunting? I, uh, I, we live in, Nancy and I live in Hinesburg, Vermont. It's a fairly small town, about 25 miles or 22 miles uh, uh, southeast of Burlington. And uh, I grew up, believe it or not, I grew up in a town that was about 15 miles away from here. So I'm, I'm one of the last native Vermonters, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned that hunting is not the same there, obviously, as it was when you grew up. Well, no, it's not. But again, uh, the, the county we live in, um, you know, is, is probably the most populous county in the state. And uh, although when you get and you go up into the northeast corners of Vermont and uh, northeast kingdom, and, you know, you have vast tracts of land to hunt there. Oh, not that we don't have it here, but it's more segmented, you know. So, mm -hmm. and there has been some habitat loss. Nancy and I are fortunate enough to to be able to, you know, have enough acreage around us to hunt. And so we can still, I can still go out the back door and hunt, but, uh, but not, not like when I was a kid. What does a normal hunt look like for you in that area? As far as, um, number of birds that you might come in contact with grouse and woodcock. Well, you know, it varies from season to season. Right now our, our, our grouse are kind of on a low ebb and, uh, they're on the low end of it. And a lot of that's related to uh, the spring hatch. We need uh, a warm, dry spring for the chicks to hatch. And because uh, once they emerge, they need to have access to insects immediately. Mm -hmm. And no insects. If you got cold, wet weather, the chicks tend to, they can die of hypothermia. But so far, hypothermia, excuse me, um, so far this year is shaping up to be a reasonably good year. Uh, woodcock, again, we have local woodcock here, but we also we, we primarily depend on the migrating woodcock for the hunting mm -hmm. there. When you say uh, it's shaping up to be a good year, what does that mean as far as a well, walk in the woods? Around here, well, I'd say good year. I mean, it's all relative. But I'm saying that, you know, we'll go out and we'll, we'll, we'll scare up four or five grouse and uh, uh, probably won't kill them all, you know, so mm -hmm. like that. <laughs> Yeah. My record is about one out of ten. Used to be two out of ten. The older I get, it gets it goes down. But anyway, um, but anyway, uh, in the woodcock again, when the flights are here, then we've got to, you know, we're just going to go out and have a great grand old time, you know. But uh, hmm. and so it's, it's and again, but like I say, we do travel. We have other covers. We hunt and things like that. We have a camp in Maine that we hunt up there, hunt out of there, and uh, so it. And it really is all depending on location. Now, when you get up upstate New York and in some spots of Maine, it's not uncommon to have 20, 30, 40 flushes a day sometimes of grouse. So it it, it really depends on the location. I've, I, I get um, a fair amount of listener or viewer feedback, and we do have a lot of viewers and listeners on the East Coast. And a lot of them talk about being able to hunt grouse, rough grouse, when they were kids. 
Uh, one area that continues, and, and I think we have just, there's such a strong hunting population in Pennsylvania. And that's one area that I continue to hear about. Well, I might see a grouse this season or very few. Um, you know, that's, that's common. In places like Pennsylvania, where grouse do live, you know, they have been there. The numbers are down. What concerns you the most? And is there any hope left? Oh, absolutely. There is hope. I mean, RGS is doing work in Pennsylvania. They, uh, I mean, you know, we are, you know, we are based in Pennsylvania. So uh, there is hope. There are areas there. There are viable, good, viable populations of grouse. The problem that I see is, is the fragmentation. Uh, you know, you the, you know, with with homes and things like that, there's just just so much you can do. Although grouse are very tolerant of uh, of being around people, but mm -hmm. you can't break up the corridors, you know. And if you start, you know, plunking down and putting a house and five acres here, five acres there, then that that becomes a problem. And uh, but I know that RGS does a lot of work in the, in Pennsylvania. So, what does a what does a grouse home range? Is it like forty acres? Well, I've always said that a grouse will probably live and die no more than a mile from where they're born. That's my personal observation. Mm -hmm. Okay, and because you know you see it a lot of times, and and you see you hunt an area and there are no grouse, and then you come back two weeks later, a week later, and you'll find five or six in there. So they're obviously moving around, uh, but they don't. There's not a big range. I mean, they're not. Uh, I mean, they're they're obviously not a migratory bird, but they generally will go where the food and water sources are. But forty acres might be. That's not all that totally inaccurate. But I've always used a mile. You know. Yeah, yeah. I feel like uh, you know a lot of people that know a lot more than I do have. Uh, you know, I, I just try to take in as much information as those around me are willing to give. And that seems to be a number that sticks with me. Like they just say, you know, they, they need these different year classes of cover and they'll move around from, you know, spring to summer to fall to winter. But generally they, they're home bodies. And so, I mean, I, when you talk about having these large tracks, um, that's just a number that, that comes to mind. Let's let's get back to NAVDA for a minute. What's your role at NAVDA? Well, right now I'm a NAVDA judge. Okay. And uh, I've, uh, you know, I, obviously Ugly Dog has been a uh, corporate sponsor for 16 years uh, at NAVDA. Uh, we support them very heavily. Ugly Dog does. And um, we... Um, you know, I've always tried to advise, uh, help out wherever we can in NAVDA. Uh, actually, I'm going to be running for vice president this year. So I just thought I'd throw that out. So, and, uh, you know. You've so got we, my vote, Terry. You've got my vote. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Anyway, it's, it, you know, uh, NAVDA is my passion. And, uh, you know, they've been very good to me. NAVDA has been very, very good to me. Um you know, before I got into NAVDA, I was, uh, you know, I was a lab guy. I had labs and chessies, and and I was pretty much a waterfowler. Most of my upland hunting was, well, yeah, I'll go out and see if I can scratch a grouse or a woodcock with one of my, one of my flushing dogs. And uh, then eventually, 
I got into the pointing dog, but I got in more of the versatile dog, and uh, I still do the still do the duck hunting, and that's why I had the German wire hairs, and um, so yeah. But Nobs has been very good to me, and I have a, a, a tremendous affection for the organization, and uh, I'm just I just want to see if I can you know I'd like to run for vice president. I am running for vice president. If elected, I'd love to see if I can make a difference. Uh, not that we're on the right track, but I want to see that it continues. Mm-hmm. You know, our membership has grown and uh, our chapters are growing. But with that uh, comes more pressure in the infrastructure, too. So I want to be there and uh, to see if we can uh, continue this for the next three or four years. The Flush. So fast, it hardly seems real. So vivid, the moment freezes in time before erupting in a blur of spurs and feathers. It's why we changed the way upland loads are built with Prairie Storm. Exclusive flight control FlexWad technology and a mix of copper-plated lead and flight stopper pellets combine to create dense, deadly shot strains through any choke. Longer shots, more power, fewer missed birds. Only from Federal. I love my dog, and like you, I always want to make sure that she has what she needs to stay healthy year-round and perform at her best in the field. That's why I feed Daisy Nutrisource high-performance dog food. Nutrisource dog food comes with their good-for-life system that includes four key ingredients that work together to support gut health, heart health, and the overall well-being of our dogs. I have complete confidence that my dog has all of the nutrition to excel in the field and make it through a rigorous hunting season. I've seen it firsthand, and she loves her food. Take it from me and my dog, Daisy. Nutrisource high-performance dog food can help your dog reach their full potential. Find the food that's right for your dog at NutrisourcePetFoods.com. A couple months ago, I had Andy Dokon uh, from NAVDA. And we got a pretty good deep dive. I encourage anybody that hasn't listened to that podcast to go search in our podcast. And it's just titled NAVDA. And you'll mm-hmm. learn a lot about the organization, why it's growing, what people um, are doing within the organization. It's it's certainly a great one. Your Terry, your role um, at NAVDA and judging for a minute, let's that, that same friend of mine that we share that has the hunting camp that we just care so deeply about, he's torn because he's really been looking at a poodle pointer. And after the conversation with Andy, he's even more uh, driven to get a poodle pointer. Uh, based on your experience watching dogs, having to judge them and score them, um, are there any dogs to you that you know, the popularity has grown with poodle pointers, uh, but are there any other breeds or that breed in particular that stand out to you? Well, Nobda has got a, 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 they're very diverse when it comes to the breeds of dogs. And, uh, and uh, you know, I will say, though, that, you know, the two, the three uh, main breeds that, and I'm not saying they're any better, but the ones that are the most popular are the German wire hair, the German short hair, and the poodle pointer. And a poodle pointer's come a long way. That's a that's a that's a great dog. They're great dogs. Um, I've hunted with a few poodle pointers over the over the years, and I've judged them with some poodle pointers. And um, I think they were actually my first choice uh, when I was looking for a, a, a versatile dog. But I don't know somehow, whatever fate was, I settled with the German wire hairs. And uh, 
But they're, you know, the Griffons are great dogs. They're all wonderful dogs. And I think any dog that's in the novice system is a great dog, in my opinion. And, um, you know, everybody's got their preferences. And, uh, you know, that's dangerous territory in novice to start recommending one dog. <laughs> yeah, I won't put you on the spot anymore. No, it, it, we'll leave it at that. But, I mean, the bottom line is that they, you know, they all basically do the same job. Some do them differently, do it differently. Um, but again, and, and again, and, and some don't do it as well. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, they all get the job done. You know, everybody has seen, says that, you know, well, you know, English setters, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're just good upland dogs. Well, I've seen some wonderful English setters out there in the water doing water work in Navda. I've seen mm-hmm. some versatile champions. So, you know, it, it really, it, it um, it's it's you know it's all over the lot, but I mean, I, I as a judge, I look at each dog as is that dog. When when I look at a dog, I you know, you got to consider you got to consider the hunting styles of different dogs. Some dogs hunt a little more methodical, some are bigger ranging, but you know what? But the point is, I always when I'm judging, I put it in a hunting context. Is that dog producing game for you? If the dog is going to produce game, you know that's that's the thing. You know, and uh, but I mean, all the dogs out there in Nobda are are just great dogs, and you know, I've I've seen I've judged some really great dogs, and I've seen some dogs that weren't so good. <laughs> <laughs> when you see those dogs, is there any advice that you? There has to be a a one piece of advice that comes to mind more often than not when you see dogs that are making mistakes, and it's probably the handler, I assume. But well, what advice do you give? Ninety nine percent of the time, it's the handler. Okay? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not the dog. I mean, I don't. I, I I really believe, and I know all these, and open the door for other professional trainers to say something. But you know, I I'm I, mean, I, I don't know. I'm just I'm soft hearted, and I believe that dogs ultimately have the desire to please you. And uh, I know there are pro trainers who will sit there and say, Wilson, you're full of it. You don't know what you're talking about. You know what I mean? But, mm-hmm. and I think dogs want to, want to, want to please you. They just don't understand or have the ability. You haven't transmitted that ability, that, that understanding to them. And, uh, you know, I see that all with my own dogs and, uh, you know, I have some uh, great German wire hairs. Nancy has short hairs, and they want to please, but they just got to understand what you want. And a lot of it is just—it's just the handlers just don't. You know, I've always said that. You know, you got to train the—you tra- got to train the trainer. You got to train the handler. Um, yeah. You know, I've seen more problems in the field. You know, with cause with you know poor handling than the actual dog, because I don't think the dog. It's rare that you see a dog that's willfully disobedient out in the field. And, what uh, can I, with, we don't need to name names of anybody, obviously, but when you see those problems out in the field, can you put into words what those problems are? Because uh, I know there's somebody listening right now that's going to say, "Yep, that's me," and I not didn't even realize I was making these mistakes. Well, I think that you know it's. It, a good bird dog starts with a foundation. It's just like a house. If you build it on quicksand, it's not going to work, okay? Mm-hmm. And you need to have a good obedience package with your dog. First thing is just obedience. You know, have that dog listen to you. Have that dog pay attention to you. Most of these people will say, you know, they just don't 
they don't have the obedience package of the dog. They've let the dog, they've cut them too much slack. Uh, they let them uh, do what they want to do. You know, I'm not saying, you know, you just, you got to get the dog under control and how you do that. Well, that there are many different ways and, you know, there's of, of getting the dog in control. But the basic thing starts when the dog is young, when the dog is a puppy, getting him to do the basic commands and recalls and things like that. Uh, a lot of people will say, well, I got to force fetch the dog. Well, it isn't, it's not, he's not retrieving, he's retrieving, but you don't have a good recall with him. You know, you haven't taught him to come back. And, uh, you know, so there's, it's, it's good basic obedience. I mean, you know, I've, I've judged and I've seen dogs that'll just go, they are out of there. They are out of control and the handler and the handler is hacking the dog and he's screaming and yelling and and it just all the wheels come off and it just goes down from there. And you know, so it's but you have to have a basic foundation. That's to, to me that's the biggest thing. Have a basic foundation. And then you can fine tune that. You know, you can go from there. But if you got that basic foundation, in other words, if you can woe a dog in the field, uh, you your dog comes back to you when you call them, uh, you know, and you can turn a dog, give them directions. I mean, that's to me, that's a big thing. It's just have that basic foundation. And I, I'm telling you, I've seen a lot of dogs, and some dogs just do not have that basic foundation. Mm-hmm. Stop or stand still. Go with me. Come to me. And heal. <laughs> yes. And heal. Yes, exactly. Well, that's something that we've preached on this because I've talked to a lot of uh, dog trainers over the last couple of years since I've been producing this podcast. And and mine in particular, George Lyle, my mentor, who's trained me and my dog, uh, to, who's trained me to train my dog. We, we go back to that a lot. And I guess, you know, in your experience, how often are you going back to the basics? Because the fundamentals are everything. And in my opinion, I'm going back to the, the fundamentals, the basics all the time, just to reaffirm them. It never ends. Even if, you know, now she's two and a half years old, my dog, but I'm still going back to that. And I anticipate doing that when she's 10. If, you know, God willing, if she's still out there with me in the field when she's 10. But yeah. is there ever a point when you stop reaffirming that where people just get sloppy and you say, guys, gals, go back to those basics? Well, when they uh, when they hit thirteen or fourteen and they can't hear anymore, then you say, "Okay, enough of that." But uh, yeah, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Until then, I mean, I uh, I've got a, a young wire hair that's going to go to the Invitational this year, and she's a very good. She's 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 got a prize one in utility, and uh, she failed at the Invitational last year. But uh, um, but the point is, it's it's daily. The training is daily. I mean, and it isn't so much as. It's almost like it's passive training, making that dog listen to you and getting them to do what you want them to do. I mean, it's as simple as saying, look, you're going to sit here while we do this, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, you, you know, or, you know, uh, a game playing and making be steady and, you know, uh, throwing bumpers and things like that. But it's just, I mean, uh, I typically will take them out for a run and we'll end up at the pond behind the house and, with the with the young wire hair, I'll just throw two bumpers and I'll I'll make her do marks and I'll make her sit there. That's all passive training, but the dog is learning, okay, consistently, and she's you know she's coming back with a bumper. I want her in a position where I can take the bumper from me. 
and if you do that on a regular basis, I mean, that's, I mean, I'm just saying that's just one segment, but that's going to, that's going to go a long way. Too many people just, they don't do anything with their dogs. The dogs sit there for nine months out of the year and they don't make them. And then they take them out hunting and they go, wow, I, you know, I took this dog out grouse hunting and I didn't see him for 45 minutes, you know, well, there's your answer. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, to put on your dog training, and this might be opening up a big can here, but I've had multiple people in the last couple of weeks reach out as hunting season is getting closer. They're nervous because they're pointing breed dog, whatever it might, whatever breed it might be, is flushing birds instead of pointing them. And I told a story about my puppy uh, being influenced by other dogs in the field because I produce TV shows. I hunt with dogs that I don't know and people that I don't know. And I like hunting with my dog. So I introduced her to situations where she was on a rock solid point. Another dog comes running up beside her, flushes the bird. Now this puppy that's not, you know, she has a great foundation, but she's seeing these other flushing dogs come in and, and flush the birds. Now she thinks, oh, that's what I need to do. And now all of a sudden the dog that I want to run two or three, 400 yards, depending on the terrain, is flushing birds at that distance where I can't get to them. And it's made it very frustrating. So I've shared that story. I've had other people say, oh my goodness, I have experienced the same things. What are you going to do to get that dog back on track? And I've, I have well, my well, own answers, I guess. But what would you say to somebody that has been put in that position, knowing that some of them are listening right now, wondering, help, help, what do I do? Well, it would depend on the age of the dog and what's going on. I mean, uh, you mentioned hunting with a – were you hunting uh, your, your pointing dog with a flushing dog? Is that what you were doing? Yep. I made that mistake. Yep. No, that's a mistake. It can be. Yep. Yep. Um, I, we've tried that before, and it, it – it, I've turned – I've well, there's a quick story. Nancy and mm -hmm. I were quail hunting, and uh, her dog – he was a great dog, but he was a competitive dog. And my dog, he was a very, very steady dog. He went on point. You could throw a grenade under underneath him, and he wouldn't go anywhere, okay? Mm -hmm. And we were quail hunting, and I think the first – we were hunting in a brace. And uh, Nancy's dog came in and, and, and stole the point and put the bird up. Well, that was fine. We got away with it that time. But the second time, my dog said, he saw him coming around. He said, you're not getting that bird. I'm going in there. So anyway, I said to Nancy, you, well, there was some foul language involved in that. But we won't get there. <laughs> I said, Nancy, you're a blank, blank dog. Turn my steady dog into a flushing dog in 35 seconds. Yes. Well, anyway, there was we had some words anyway. But anyway, I, I'm very reluctant to do that. I... I prefer not to hunt with, with flushing dogs, uh, with my pointing dogs, because it does teach them bad habits. But now, having said that, um, you know, I mean, if these dogs have grown up as puppies and they're used to that type of hunting, um, you know, I, I, I think it can be fine. But I would be reluctant. I'd be wary about doing that on a regular basis. That's going to encourage bad habits, in my opinion. So the mistakes have been made, Terry. I've already made the mistakes. Well, the mistakes and that's my, that, yeah, so my puppy, you know, very. How old, how old is your puppy? Well, she's two now, so she's no longer a puppy. She's um, definitely 
you know, grown, but she's also been put in those positions because of my desire to hunt with her while I'm on the road filming with these other people in different locations throughout the season. Because in my mind, I'm like, gosh, my the season goes so short and I spend so much time hunting and filming TV shows with other people that I'm like, I just want my dog to be out there. And in the process, this is why she was put in these situations because of my own Ah, my own selfishness and yeah. wanting to have my dog out there. So, um, trust yeah. me, I've been, I have been scolded by plenty of viewers that have told me I made these mistakes and I've learned for sure. But now that the mistakes have been made, I know a lot like, like these other listeners and viewers that have reached out to me asking for help now because they made the same mistakes. What do we do when we've made that mistake? How do you get that pointer back after that pointer thinks it's a flusher? Well, let me ask you this. Is she doing it only when she's hunting with another dog or is it just when she's hunting by herself with you? I've, I saw it last year when she was by herself, too. And after what, what, after what these. What were you hunting? Pheasant? Pheasant. Yep. Mm, okay. Which is the worst. I know point. I know dog traders that that work exclusively with pointers. They they curse pheasants. They curse them because a running pheasant can just provides so many oh, yeah. terrible habits. Well, I would say um, I would go back to basics with uh, maybe some planted birds and working her one-on-one -on -one or maybe having an assistant to, uh, if even if you have to put her on a check cord and mm -hmm. steady her up, you know what I'm saying? I mean, have a very controlled situation. Mm -hmm. uh, there are many ways of doing it, but, um, you know, to bring that back, you know, do, use some planted birds or something you know, where she's going to point it and she's going to stay and you're going to set here and lower. And, um, you know, that's, but does she do it all the time? Well, it's from, from my experience, I'm doing exactly what you just said. I have taken her back to the basics and we've started over and repetition again and again and again. Now we've got hunting seasons coming up. It'll be interesting to see how this new season uh, you know, and I'm anticipating her taking a big step forward now that she's, this will be her third hunting season as a two-year-old, two and a half years old. She was eight months, seven, eight months when I took her out the first season. Obviously, a puppy can get away with a lot more, but this year she's being held accountable for 100% of her actions out there. Um, and I'm hoping that the work I've put in with her this off season is going to make a big difference. But um yeah, I, I I went back to the the very basics, and that's what I've been explaining to people that I've been doing. And then contacts with birds, wild birds, planted birds as well. But really, getting out there with wild birds, I'm not putting her in those situations to have another fleshing dog come in and steal that point. Um, you know, and you know, I'm I'm still learning a lot all the time, Terry, and yeah. I'm, I'm taking I, I, a lot of notes. But I wouldn't. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't. I if you're concerned about the pointing, I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't uh, expose her. You know, and they are flushing dogs because these yeah. dogs getting competitive. They want to get the bird. You know. So, mm -hmm. so yeah. you know. I, let me ask you this: How does she uh, when she gets on a running bird? What does she do? Um, it's interesting because she goes into this mindset and she is so, she has so much prey drive, Terry. It's unbelievable. Some of the dog trainers are like, holy crap. 
that dog. It, when when she was, and I'll just take you back quick stories here. When she was eight, 10 months old, and we'd be out in the field, she would run through the highest setting on the collar, telling her to stop while chasing a bird until that GPS lost signal. That's how much drive she had for those birds that would flush. What um, kind of dog do you have? She's an English setter mixed with a German short hair pointer. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Her, so you, got two, you got a combination of two high-speed, low-drag dogs there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting. So a friend of mine, Tyler Webster, out in North Dakota, I've hunted with him many times, and I've hunted with both of the dogs. And it was an oops litter, but for some reason, I just said, yeah, I'll take, I'll take her. She's a cute one. And my family fell in love with her as a puppy. And um, but I, both of those, both of my dog's parents are just amazing hunters and they each, and she took on the traits of both of them. She has this unbelievable drive. So I'm, you know, I've heard a thousand million times you can pull a rope back. You can't push it. Well, don't have to worry about that with her. She wants to go, go, go. So it's basically getting her to stop. But I bringing you to, you know, the end of last season, um, when I saw these habits, that I caused, I'm admitting this, and I know I made this mistake, but I, at the end of the season, I worked with her. When we weren't on the road filming and I wasn't hunting with her on TV, it was 100% me working with her. I wouldn't take a shot on a bird that she would flush. Anything that she did wrong, I held her accountable for at the end of last season and just kept working and working and working with her. But running running pheasants are very difficult on, on that in that scenario. And there are times when she gets on them and it's like she just loses everything. When I go to a game farm or a planted bird, you would you would watch her and you'd say, wow, that dog is amazing. She does not make any mistakes. She holds her point. She mm -hmm. doesn't flinch. And then you get in the real life situation and this pheasant, it's like she just has to have it. And I've seen her times before where she's been on point when she just couldn't take anywhere. And she goes, all right, I'm going in. And, and I'm like, what are you doing? So... She has these lapses of, of yeah. being held accountable, and she knows what she's doing, but she just says, bleep it, I'm going in. Well, that might be a question of age, too. How old did you say she was? Well, she this spring she turned to us, so now she's two years, yeah. seven months, something like that. Yeah, it's still Eight a months. young dog, and, and I've always said that, might, there's again, you know, I don't want you to get with a firestorm of listeners, but. I've always is it takes three to four years to have a, a good solid hunting dog hitting on all eight cylinders, uh, you know, where they've learned the game. And so it may be a question of age. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. you know, I'll, I'll give you a quick scenario. My, my original wire hair, he got so frustrated hunting pheasants. He figured he got, he, he figured the game out. We were out there and he would literally, Take a right. If we were hunting in Milo or grass and that bird was running, he'd take a right. He'd run down 50 yards and come back in and pinch that bird. And uh, it, it was amazing to see that dog do that work. And I'm not taking flushing it. He would he would go come around and point it again. And uh, he pinched a lot of birds that way for us. So and some dogs figure that out, but they will make you. They'll make a pointing dog crazy. There's no question about it. Oh, for sure. And it's interesting too in that. She can have the most beautiful points on hens, and everybody will say this, but it's like she has to figure out the difference in how close she can get to a rooster. They just will not 
hold the same way that a hen will hold. And that's, right. that's for that's for her to learn. And so I guess, you know, in talking through this, and hopefully some of the listeners that have been emailing me about what I've been doing, uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe this is helpful to them in knowing that it's back to the foundation. It's reaffirming all of your training again and again and again and again and not letting them get away with those little mistakes because they, they, they keep growing into larger ones. Correct them right off the bat. Repetition, repetition, repetition. Yep. Does that sound like I mean, that's how you do it. I mean, that's I mean, yeah. I hate to say it, but that's it's not there's no magic bullet for that. So it's just it's just time and it doesn't need to be a lot of time, maybe five, ten minutes a day or fifteen minutes a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just you know, getting them, uh, steadying them up again, you know, uh, and, and like you say, you go back to the basic planted birds and working them with an assistant or whatever. But in uh, obviously never shooting a bird planted or otherwise that uh, they try to take out because that's creating bad. That's just a bad. That's that's just making things worse. You know what I mean? So. Yep. Yep. Well, and maybe this too for somebody that has a pointing breed and a puppy or is going to get them, you know, when we talk about these mistakes, I, the point of my podcast, or this podcast is to educate and uh, help people out, inspire all that good stuff. Um, but also just know that this is a real thing. You can create a lot of frustration for yourself. A lot of the comments I get back is they say, I have a short season. I work a lot. I've got family. I want to make, I want to take my dog out there when I go on a hunting trip with buddies. So I'm willing to have some of these oopses and let them slip by because I just want to be out there with my dog. And to that, I say, I get it. But if you look at the big picture, learn from my mistakes. Yeah. Maybe. Either that that or don't run in braces, run them separately. That's what I mean. Yes, exactly. You can still go out hunting with buddies, but maybe you just have to take your dog and go walk you know, this part of the property and let them walk the other part and meet in the middle, which is actually a good, good plan if you're hunting public land anyway. But that way your dog doesn't have the other one, a flusher coming up. If your pointer doesn't have a flusher coming up alongside and, and knocking them off the birds and, and creating those bad habits. So, um, I guess it's a long, we've been on this topic now for 20 minutes. So I apologize for taking us this way, but but I just know you have a lot of experience in it. So I thought I could help some of our listeners out. Well, as we know, had typically, well typically when I train for the invitational, uh, when it comes to steadiness and pointing, I want a dog that's going to come in and try to steal that dog's point. That's for training purposes. That's not hunting because that to me, that's, you know, you, you, you when you run the invitational, you got to run at a brace and you're going to find dogs out there. If you're running, that may not be the best dogs in the world. And, uh, it's happened to me before, and you don't want your dog to come unglued, so you expose them to that. That's it. But that again, that's a training scenario. You know what I'm saying? That's yeah. not a real, that's not that's not real life hunting. What do you do in that scenario then? If you can walk us through it. Well, typically, what I'll do is I'll find a dog who's misbehaving a lot, and uh, you know there are people that have dogs that like to come in and steal points, and uh, and we'll we'll use planted birds and. Uh, we'll try to set the scenario up where my dog goes on point and let that dog come right in and bust that bird right in front of him. Okay. And, you know, and so you teach them to, you, you teach them to be steady. And I would use an e-caller on them at that time, at that point, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But 
you have to do that if you're going to go to the Invitational because that can't happen. And it's happened to me before. And, uh, you know, in what happens is your dog comes unglued and you're going to suffer like the rest of them because mm-hmm. of it. But, and that's, and that's usually a repetition thing. And, uh, or, you know, you give them all kinds of distractions. Uh, you have a dog on point and somebody will throw another bird right in front of them, let it fly off, you know, uh, hopefully using pigeons because they're less money, but <laughs> <laughs> right. The second that pigeons. dog, what, so your dog's on, on point and here comes this other dog. What are you looking for? And when do you make the decision to press a button on your collar? If my dog moves so much as twitches, that's when uh, I'm going to, and I'm not talking about excess electricity. I'm talking minimal, but I'm just going to let yep. them know that I'm here and you're not moving until I give you permission. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and this is, this can be very effective. And, uh, in fact, we may do that this weekend. We need to do some training this weekend that way. I'm coming over, Terry. I'm going to train with you. <laughs> Bring my dog over. <laughs> How far is Vermont from Minnesota? Well, it's a drive. <laughs> yeah, okay. Maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> well, let's let's end this podcast here. Your wife, Nancy, bless her. She wanted us to really be able to um, combine with your experience and all of the volunteering you do and all the organizations you work with. She really wanted us to be able to explain how everyone is working together. Can you tangibly explain how these organizations are working together or what people can do to help continue the common goal that we all share or grow the goal that we all share? Well, I think that, you know, the organizations, all of them uh, uh, should be reaching out and, 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 collaborating with one another, and I believe they are now. Uh, I know that uh, NAVDA works with Pheasants Forever, and they work with the RGS, and I'm hoping that uh, NAVDA will start working with DU, and uh, together, I mean, we're a large force, but, you know, just keep keep the mind open, and, uh, you know, I think, you know, it's hard to say, you know, in one one word how you're going to do this, but I think it's... uh, just acknowledging that there are other other conservation organizations, and my my advice to somebody sitting in uh, uh, in Vermont that says, "Well, I've never, uh, I've never, I don't go out west and hunt pheasant." So, okay, fine, join pheasants forever, be part of that voice, okay. As well as somebody in, in the Midwest saying, "Well, you know, I don't hunt grouse." Well, join join the Rough Grouse Society, be part of that voice. Uh, if these organizations work together, I mean, and people are willing to volunteer time and or money, uh, it's, it's, it's going to be a big help. I mean, you know, it. a lot of people, that they don't hunt ducks, but so what? Join Ducks Unlimited because we're all looking at the habitat. Well said. And if an opportunity comes to volunteer with your local chapter or Absolutely. become active in any way in your chapter, naturally – more opportunities are going to continue to come from it. And everyone together collectively does make a difference in, right. in our common goal. So Terry, I appreciate you taking the time today. Check out uglydoghunting.com if you want to see all of the products that Terry's selling, um, which wasn't his goal on this podcast, by the way. I just, I like talking hunting and educating people. So uh, it's good to know if somebody doesn't already know about your services that they're out there in the products that you sell. Um, and uh, a best of luck to you this season, Terry. I, I hope that the grouse numbers 
surprise you as you head into the woods this fall. Let's hope so. And to everybody else, the same. Our next couple of episodes of The Flush are going to be a, a variety of hunts from Iowa this week, North Dakota next week, Florida snipe the week after, and then Arizona quail as we seek out the Arizona slam, the Upland slam down there. Those are the television episodes. I will be back next week. I believe if I have internet service in Alaska, I will give you an update on our adventure up there in search of ptarmigan. The season is here, my friends. I hope you're all excited. Go back to the foundation with your dogs so that you can enjoy every hunt with them this fall in the field. Until next time, I'm Travis Frank, reminding you to take the time to introduce someone new to the field. <laughs>